Perhaps Paul Jenner thought his partner would be rehabilitated after she spent six months in prison for grievous bodily harm against him. He allowed her right back into his home, probably lonely and hopeful that she had learned her lesson or been scared straight. But five days after her release, she beat him again, causing such extensive brain trauma, doctors said he was lucky to be alive. But unfortunately for Paul, his luck just ran out. This podcast contains adult themes, language, and violence. It is not suited to all audiences and may be triggering to some. In many cases, the names and details within these episodes have been changed to protect privacy. Opinions expressed by guests of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the podcast or its producers. Welcome to Isolated, a podcast about male victims of domestic abuse and control, as well as those suffering as a result of parent alienation syndrome. We are not therapists or experts in this field, but seek to bring these issues to light and provide awareness of early warning signs of abusive behavior and resources for help. Hello, ISOs. I'm Navi Carpenter. And I'm Chella. Man, it has been tough around here lately. Ugh, I know. Yeah. Uh, the COVID Delta variant is spreading like the California wildfires. We don't have a clear sky anymore. It's all smoke and ash as the worst fires in our history blaze out of control due to the drought conditions of the last three years. And it's literally one thing after another. I'm tired of it. And as we know, external stressors and forced isolation from the virus or bad air quality now can exacerbate abusive conditions in the home. We are blessed to only have to deal with fire, virus, masks, and drought because Paul Jenner had it so much worse. In 2019, 37-year-old Sherry Nadu assaulted her partner, 42-year-old Paul Jenner of Bedfordshire, sending him to the hospital. This was not the first assault, and it was not the last. There was an extensive history of her abuse. Sharon was feeling pretty smug. Paul refused to give any testimony against her, and she'd always gotten away with doing whatever she wanted to Paul. So why would this time be any different? But it was. Even without Paul testifying, the jury found her guilty of grievous bodily harm and sentenced her to three months in prison. Police officer Alicia Lawrence stated in an article on Daily Mail, quote, when I've looked back through all the history, there have been so many assaults that have been reported to us where Paul refused to provide any statement and wouldn't name who assaulted him, end quote. She told the prosecution and defense attorneys that one day Sherry was going to kill Paul. Another police officer on the case said, quote, if she kills him, I don't want that on my conscience. I desperately want him to come on board. I'll do as much as I can possibly do to help him out of that situation. If he won't, he won't. I think once I've tried, I'll feel better, end quote. On October 17th, Sherry was released from prison and inexplicably was right back together with Paul. It's like last yeah. uh, episode. There's no way to know if he was openly accepting of this or if she forced or manipulated her way in. But in either case, it was disastrous. Five days later, someone in a nearby apartment said they were watching TV and looking out their window and saw Paul slumped over on the floor of his apartment. Sherry was screaming at him, quote, why are you on the floor? Get the fuck off the floor, end quote. 
Imagine what he must be thinking at that moment. Here we go again. That didn't take long. I know. Like 2020 hindsight, man. Like, why I wonder am I? if maybe in the UK, if someone was found guilty and was sentenced to prison, why there wasn't some sort of restraining order. You know, don't come into contact with the person that... Once you get out. Yeah. It. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, that, that part of the, the inner workings of their relationship is not... It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely complex. Later, another neighbor said Paul came knocking on their door. He had a black eye and cuts on his face. And I don't know if he stayed long at the neighbors or there was nothing in the report about why he went there or what was said. But at some point, Paul must have gone back home because the following day, Sherry attacked him again. This time he had massive head injuries and a fractured eye socket. The photo of his head looks like he got run over by a truck. He was taken to the hospital, hemorrhaging from two places in his brain. Paul received urgent medical treatment from a specialist for brain trauma. He was in and out of consciousness, and the doctor said chances of survival were slim. What did she hit him with? I would think it had to be pretty massive if it caused bleeding in the brain. Yeah, I'm no medical doctor, but it is odd because... Seriously, every other story we've read about clearly describes the murder weapon. Yeah. But, and um, personally, my brother was hit by a car when uh-huh, he was young, uh-huh. and that caused bleeding in the brain. Yeah. Like, I mean, and that was a car. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, not one single article mentioned what she attacked Paul with. So I do not know. It's that adrenaline again, right. I guess. Yeah. Who knows a, what she grabbed? A Hoover. A Hoover. A yeah. Hoover. That's been a popular one. After days in the hospital, Paul was relatively stabilized. He himself called 999 and told the dispatcher, quote, I've been violently attacked again by my partner. I'm in intensive care. She's been in prison for six months and she's come out and done it to me again. I've just got to get out of the relationship now, haven't I? End quote. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's the understatement of the year. The dispatcher agreed, saying, quote, yes, I would say so. People who love you don't hurt you like that. End quote. Investigator Constable Siddiqui, I hope I said that right, went to the hospital to question Paul. And strangely, Paul said that he had taken heroin, but no track marks were found on his body. That's just really weird. Well, I think you could smoke heroin too. I don't know if that's accurate. I'm, I have no idea, but Hmm. I, yeah, I wouldn't know. He said that he and Sherry had been drinking together and it escalated. He didn't remember anything after that, but said, quote, she nearly killed me. End quote. But after a phone call from Sherry, Paul quickly recanted his statement to Siddiqui. When subsequent officers came to question him, he said they had it all wrong. He said Nadu had done nothing wrong and that he was drunk, fell over, and smashed his head on a shoe rail. What's a shoe rail? Um, is it like a like a shoe holder? Like I- like one of those metal things that you scrape your shoes on outside to get the mud off? I don't know. I don't know either. Anyway, it doesn't seem like that could cause brain hemorrhaging, but maybe it could. He said he loved her and wanted Sherry to be released, saying, quote, I just want to get back to my Sherry, end quote. Officer Lawrence was hugely disappointed, saying on News.com, this genuinely concerns me because he obviously wants to engage, but he's scared. But he's given us just enough with a 999 call. We'll go in without him, end quote. In other words, she felt they had enough to convince Sherry without Paul's testimony. 
Yeah. And really quick, back to the shoe rail. Yeah. Looked it up and it looks like it's actually like a staircase. It might be something they call. Molding? Yeah. It looks like the molding where the banister It's connects. wood. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. It I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but. Okay. Officer Lawrence went to the hospital to try once more to get Paul to speak up against Sherry. She asked Paul how he was doing. He said he was pissed off because Sherry had been locked up for no reason and that she had not assaulted him in any way, shape, or form. Lawrence said, come on, Paul. It doesn't have to be like this. The police probably want to nail her so bad. I know. But he just won't. Yeah. Yeah, he's so deeply indoctrinated to protect her. Well, Paul finally admitted that he didn't want to go home. Probably not if Sherry had any chance of showing up. Officer Lawrence says she could set up a call with a victim engagement officer to find Paul another place to stay. And Paul half-heartedly agreed. He was asked, if you had a magic wand, where would you want to go? He replied simply, heaven. That's really sad. Six days after convincing Paul to relocate, he seemed to be recuperating well from his injuries and was ready to be released. But that night, he either had a heart attack or another brain bleed. Reports are conflicting on that. But he fell into a coma and died later that evening. Since he did name her on the 999 call, Sherry was taken into custody. She didn't seem bothered in the slightest. She was smirking and smiling as they read her her rights. She was overheard telling a friend that she had been arrested, saying, quote, I'll sort it out. I've done nothing. I'll be out tonight. I ain't done nothing wrong. She's so sure of herself and has a self-confidence that has no basis in reality. I know. It was hard for the police to keep their professional composure when they really just wanted to slap the smile right off her face. She told officers, I didn't do fuck all, and promptly refused to answer any questions. Officers played the 999 call for her, and she heard Paul claiming she was responsible for the assault. She said, quote, it's bullshit coming out of his mouth. I didn't do nothing to him. That's what's doing my fucking head in. I got in a mood having an argument, end quote. What is that supposed to mean? I got in a mood. It sounds like an admission to me. Or an excuse. You know, I was just in a bad mood. And how are you like questioning this man who you supposedly loved and is now dead like you're questioning and and smiling the whole time yeah sherry nadu's second trial at lutton crown court was an unfortunate disaster even though coroner sean cummings testified that he felt sherry did violently assault paul and that the assault put into motion a medical sequence of events leading to his death other testimony was damaging A neuropathologist said that the bleeding in Paul's brain could have been there a long time and thus have started while Sherry was still in prison for the last assault. But are they saying it would have started from the original assault? Wouldn't it still be her direct fault? But I guess this trial wasn't about that assault. A pathologist could not say beyond a reasonable doubt that Paul hadn't stumbled while drunk and hit his head. It was pointed out that he was a chronic alcoholic, so it was felt that neither a charge of murder or manslaughter could stick. They would try for grievous bodily harm with intent instead. An article on Bedfordshire Live listed statements from friends and neighbors taken at the inquest that point to a history of abuse and control by Sherry. Read that first one, Chella. One witness stated, quote, I would describe Paul as someone who always tried. He was an alcoholic and he wasn't whiter than white but he would always apologize if I complained about the noise coming from the property. 
and he would always be polite to me. Paul loved Sherry unconditionally. She was his world. I think he loved her more than she loved him. Paul always made the effort to make things up between them after an argument. Not Sherry. I would describe Sherry as pure evil. Sherry used to brag in the back garden about her doing martial arts and would openly say, I could take him or her, or I could punch his or her face in. Paul would always try to get her to be quiet, but she wouldn't listen. I heard a lot of verbal arguments and would see Paul with a black eye. Paul would tell me that Sherry had done it. I never saw Paul be violent to Sherry. It was very one-sided, end quote. And I'm not sure what he was whiter than white means in the UK, but I'm going to assume it means something like he wasn't squeaky clean. You know, it wasn't perfect. Right. I think you're right. But he was nice and apologetic. Another neighbor of Paul and Sherry's called her controlling, saying, quote, he was not allowed to look at women, so he looked at the wall instead, end quote. The witness alleged she would accuse him of looking at my breast so he would look at a wall to avoid any argument, end quote. Another witness remarked that Paul was a bubbly person who never talked badly about Sherry. Paul had mentioned he felt bad for her because she had had a rough time of it with her ex-boyfriends and family, so he felt loyal to her and her white knight syndrome. The witness said, quote, while Sherry was in custody for grievous bodily harm the first time, Paul told me she kept a knife under the bed. In the same conversation, Paul said to me that he had to sleep with one eye open. I wasn't sure if this comment was a joke, end quote. Shall I read Officer Lawrence's statement made on the sun.com? She said, quote, he really loved her and he protected her until he died. He would have always defended her. He was completely used to that way of life and it's all he knew anymore. And that's a tragedy. This is going to be a case that stays with me for life. I hope she goes down for a very long time. Knowing what we know now, I don't think grievous bodily harm with intent is enough. And I think it should go up again to murder, end quote. Unfortunately, that was not the outcome of her trial. Sherry did finally admit in court that she assaulted Paul, but Judge Lynn Tayton ruled there was insufficient evidence that the assault caused his death. He also admitted that Sherry's life had been, quote, extremely troubled and that she had also suffered domestic violence in a previous relationship, end quote. So that gives her free reign to attack anybody in the future? I know. Apparently she was abused as a child and after leaving home became an alcoholic. In the end, she was once again convicted of grievous bodily harm and sentenced to 16 months in prison. That's it? Yep. A year and four months. Yep. I read grievous bodily harm in the UK can carry a sentence of up to life imprisonment and she gets just over a year. I know. Does it sound like the judge felt sorry for her because she had a hard upbringing? Uh, What about Paul? Right? Yeah. It was no walk in the park for him. They brought up his alcoholism as like, that could be a reason why he died. I I couldn't say. That's probably his coping mechanism. (laughs) I know with most of these men, if they drink, she drove them to drink. Maybe the with intent part comes with a harsher sentence and they were only able to convict her without it. But how the hell could there not be intent? When she was arrested twice before. One commenter on the show, 24 Hours in Police Custody, said of the trial, quote, well, good old British justice again. Failed Paul, the police and all of us. His life was worth eight months on good behavior. It's a travesty, end quote. An article on telegraph.co.uk back in 2010 stated that, quote, 
Judges have been told to deal less severely with female criminals than men when determining how to sentence them, end quote. Why? What possible sense does that make? Just about none, if you ask me. Another 2016 article on blogs.ise covers Fillion M. Pinchevsky and Benjamin Steiner's research of 78,000 felony defendants. While most past research focused on racial and ethnic imbalances, their study focused on gender-based disparities. Were men and women treated equally by the justice system? They focused in on what they called focal concerns that guide judges' responses. Will you map those out, Chella? Yes. One is blameworthiness or a defendant's culpability for the offense and the degree of harm they caused. Two, risk to the community. How dangerous is the defendant likely to be in the future? Three, practical consequences of imposing the sentence. In other words, judges are sensitive to the ramifications of incarcerating certain defendants, i.e. those with dependent children. So based on those focal concerns, the researchers felt that then, quote, women should receive leniency during pretrial because they generally commit less serious crimes and or have shorter criminal histories than men, are underrepresented in offender populations, are less likely to act alone when committing crimes, and frequently commit crimes with men. And because of the perceived social costs, particularly the cost to the family of incarcerating female defendants. There is evidence to suggest that women are sentenced less harshly than men, but it is less clear whether women receive similar leniency during pretrial, end quote. Super interesting, right? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. The research also suggested that if a judge perceives that a woman seems less capable of coping with incarceration, they may receive more leniency. Pinchevsky and Steiners found that a judge was more likely to release women on their own recognizance than men, less likely to be denied bail than men, and were given lower bail amounts. That hardly seems fair. I know. But nothing seems fair for men as far as abuse goes. Mm -hmm. They have far less support, far less resources, and are unlikely to be believed. And then, if they are taken seriously, the criminal charges are filed, it'll be a slap on the wrist compared to what they would get if the rules were reversed. It's honestly maddening. Yeah, I know. It's so not right. When the truth is that women and men both have the same ability to be pure evil. Yes, they can both be monsters. An article by Jenny Reese on BBC.com talks extensively about how male victims are not taken seriously when they try to report coercive control. If they have knife wounds or bullet holes or hammer marks, yes, the pendulum is swinging slowly towards belief that they are indeed the victim here. So you have to be bleeding, bludgeoned. Yes. But coercive control, that's a whole nother matter. You can't see it. It's not a bruise or a wound. But Craig, quoted in the article under anonymity, said bruises all heal. But this psychological abuse can be for life. End quote. Craig did tell police that his former partner had stolen his independence, took away his confidence, gained control of all his money, constantly demeaned him, gaslighted him, leaving him with a huge case of complex PTSD. But the police came to the conclusion that there was no action they could take against her and no charges were filed. Craig said they did not interview all the important witnesses and did not take into account or even look at all the evidence. He was told he would have to take the matter to civil court. Do you know the only organization that would help Craig? Welsh Women's Aid. Well, that's a twist. Right? I guess they totally get what coercive control is and how badly anyone in a relationship like that needs help. 
So I'm glad they didn't turn him away just because he was male. Right. Bravo, Welsh women's aid. Craig admitted that it was difficult to write a police report because at first he didn't even see it as, quote, abuse. But he knew something was happening to him and it wasn't right and it felt awful. Everything he did was controlled. How he did his laundry, how he made a cup of tea or navigated traffic, what to wear, where to go. It's imprisonment, but no one can see the bars. It's servitude, but no one can see the shackles. There's another guy talked about in that article, Jack, who said that coercive control is, quote, a bit like walking on quicksand. I kept the pressure off by staying busy. I didn't stop tidying, cleaning, hoovering, but I'd be told I hadn't done the job right or hadn't done it well enough. I would have a crushing feeling of being completely useless, end quote. Unlike Craig, Jack did say that the police believed him when he told them what was going on, but he hasn't pressed charges. Well, that's something. In the article, Simon Borgia from the charity Safer Wales and the DYN Project Supporting Male Victims said that the fact that men aren't believed could be in part because the police agency they are reaching out to doesn't know what coercive control looks like and aren't at all sure what to do. Simon says he encourages victims to reach out to their organizations so they can help navigate the system. He spoke about how important it was to have victims' experiences validated immediately so they don't internalize the trauma. Simon said, quote, we see a lot of depression, alcohol or substance misuse, or not engaging with work, friends, or social networks like they used to. A lot of men tell us it feels like a pressure valve's been released when they do talk to us, end quote. We will have a link to that charity in our show notes and on our website for men in Wales. On a positive note, legislation on coercive control has been strengthened in the UK by the Domestic Abuse Act, which now allows victims to prosecute abusers even if they no longer live together. Right. So they can get the hell out and then throw the book at them. Something like that. So there are 11 things within coercive control that are now illegal to do in the UK. They are unlawful for a partner to do. And when they say throw the book at the perpetrator, this is what's in that UK book. Unfortunately, the USA is not there yet. And these things aren't yet criminal, but we sure hope they become so. Why don't you list those things for us, Chella? So author Rebecca Creek of the Clacton and Frinton Gazette listed these 11 illegal behaviors. One, sharing sexually explicit images of a partner. So no revenge porn or any other type of share. Two, restricting access to money, which is economic abuse, which we extensively talked about in episode 16. Three, constantly putting you down, mocking you, calling you names and insulting you. Four, isolation, preventing you from seeing friends and family, monitoring or blocking communications and telling you where you can and cannot go. Five, scaring you intimidating you physically, slamming doors and cupboards, smashing things, even if they don't strike you. Six, threatening to tell others sensitive things about you, such as health activities or sexual orientation. Seven, tracking devices on your phone, computer, car, or anywhere else, not legal. Eight, over-the-top jealousy, constant accusations of cheating, looking or coveting others, This includes possessiveness and a demand for all your time and attention. Nine, setting a stringent set of rules and demanding that you follow them. Ten, controlling how you look, telling you what to wear, how to cut your hair, etc. Eleven, 
forcing you to do things you don't want to, such as break the law, neglect, or abuse children, have sex with another person, look at porn, or keep silent about your abuse. All of that is coercive control. All of that is illegal in the UK and considered a punishable criminal offense between intimate partners. That's great, but... Even if that punishment for women offenders may be more lenient than if it were for a man, it's still something. We can't even prosecute my sister-in-law here in the U.S. It's so damn frustrating. Yeah. And even if, you know, she wouldn't be held in jail or go to trial, it would mean something, I think, for her and others to acknowledge what she did caused this. Yeah. Her actions, her behavior was wrong. Yeah, I agree. Well, ISOs, please take these things to heart. Think about Paul Jenner and his life that Sherry Nadu took from him. If you know you are in an abusive relationship, strongly consider doing whatever it takes to get out. We send you tons of brave courage and fortitude in our thoughts and prayers. If you're not sure your partner is abusive, take a good look at those 11 items we just listed. And of course, there are others. They didn't even list sleep deprivation, and that's a big one. That's a huge one. All of them are harmful to you, and you are worth more and deserve so much better. As always, we pray for your welfare and healing. Until next time, be safe, be smart, and above all, survive. If you or someone you love is being abused by an intimate partner, we have resources listed on our website at isolatedpodcast.com. If you have an experience, expertise, or advice you'd like to share, please send an email to notalone at isolatedpodcast.com or visit our website. Your privacy, should you desire it, is a top priority for us. You can support the work of this podcast and help fund much-needed therapy for men who can't afford it. By becoming a member through our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash isolated podcast, which also gets you perks and benefits unavailable to non-members. You can cancel at any time. Your five-star review on iTunes will also help promote the show and help listeners find the podcast. Thank you so much for your support.